essentially making resilience a part of our everyday work. And that needs to happen, absolutely. But when we get to mainstream, we also are mainstreaming the systems that have been in place forever that have brought many communities to a place of inequity. And so transformative change asks us to look at both the quest for mitigating climate change risks and the quest for justice and social equity. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. My name is Kiff Scheuer. I'm the Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission and host of our regular monthly series on adaptation and livable communities, where we discuss ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. We're running these episodes as a series to highlight adaptation issues leading up to our California Adaptation Forum, which is coming up in Sacramento, August 27th through 29th. The Biennial California Adaptation Forum gathers the community together to foster knowledge exchange, innovation, and mutual support to create resilient communities across California. Hope you can join us, and you can register now at californiaadaptationforum.org. Today as our guest, we're honored to have Joyce Coffey. Joyce is a founder and president of the Climate Resilience Consulting, a certified B Corp. Joyce is an accomplished organizational strategist, visionary leader with over 25 years of domestic and international experience in the corporate, government, and nonprofit sectors, implementing resilience and sustainability strategies, management systems, performance measurement, partnerships, benchmarking, and reporting. More recently, she created corporate social responsibility plans and reports for Fortune 500 companies as the vice president at Edelman and ran a preeminent global adaptation nonprofit grounded in university-based research and analytics, the Notre Dame Global Adaptation Initiative. Joyce regularly speaks as an expert in climate adaptation and resilience and is presented at Climate Week, WEF, COP, side events, Green Biz, among others. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. I'm so glad to be here on this important mission. So Joyce, your work, as I've looked at it, is increasingly tackling issues of funding and financing for resilience. You've done scans of the landscape. You've helped develop frameworks. You've led discussions with key stakeholders in a variety of sectors. I'd love for you to share with the audience from your vantage, what does that landscape look like now? What should folks be thinking about when they begin to explore the finance space for resilience? Well, Kiv, I think that's a great question. First, I'd like to mention, why do I focus on this finance question? And the major reason is that I'm seeing a giant trend in the adaptation and resilience space for climate change action towards needing more finance and more funding for the plans that we've been putting in place over the last couple of years. So people are really scrambling, trying to figure out the marketplace. And at the same time, the marketplace is realizing that, number one, there are projects to invest in that will increase resilience in our communities. And number two, that the assets that they currently have under investment or under management may, in fact, be at risk from climate change. So those two trends, I think, are leading to a variety of changes in the marketplace. And we're seeing that in a few ways. Number one, we're seeing an increase in liability Liability for city planners, for real estate professionals, for engineers, for anyone who's involved in actually built form work around climate risks. It's no longer actually acceptable to say that it was an act of God or force majeure that destroyed a community. We now know about these future climate changes. So liability issues are increasingly 
at the top of the mind of financiers and investors in climate resilience. Number two, there is a growing demand from the credit rating agencies and others in the financial services industry for greater transparency around the physical risk of climate change. We know, for instance, that at the turn of the year, both Standard & Poor's and Moody's said that they would be incorporating climate risk into their assessment of a community's ability to pay back loans. And the Task Force on Climate-Related Finance Disclosure, or TCFD, has issued guidelines for the financial services industry that suggest to them what they should do to ensure that the physical risks from climate change do not unduly affect their portfolios. So those are several trends that I see in this landscape of funding and finance for our communities' resilience and adaptation initiatives. And those can be daunting prospects that you just listed, uh, increase in liability, no force majeure, credit agencies. From a local government perspective, a lot of our audience are local governments. Where does this translate the rubber hit the road most directly? Where should they be looking at tackling this first? I think that's a great question. Well, the first thing that many of our communities are doing is they are mainstreaming climate change actions, by which I mean that commissioners for their departments of water management and transportation and health and office of emergency management are in fact asking questions about future climate change risk when they are making decisions. And this is crucially important because if if our frontline leadership continues to ask these questions, it will mean that we make decisions today that address the scenarios of climate change for the future. So that's something that I think every city, even if you do not yet have a climate change action plan, can do. What are your major hazards? Will there be, where are you currently experiencing, for instance, flooding during extreme weather events? Wind-related damage to your properties. Extreme heat, morbidity, and mortality to your population. Wildfire. Health impacts that may be related to vector-borne disease. Just this set of risks and hazards, asking yourself the question as a city leader, what would it mean if each one of those hazards were more extreme or to a greater extent in our communities? And how can I prevent that extreme from occurring. So I think that's one thing that all communities can do, regardless of whether they have a climate plan, ask themselves what the hazards are, and then figure out how to address those hazards through their everyday. But since you started by asking me about finance, I must come back to the workhorse of every city in America, and that is the GEO bond, the GO bond. We are currently spending billions of dollars in the United States to try to modernize our infrastructure, to grow our cities, to bring innovation. That GO bond money, if it is not being spent for projects that build resilience to the future scenarios of climate change, it is dinosaur dollars. It is not helping us to be part of a robust future for our cities. So these traditional means of finance are in fact crucial for building mainstream community resilience across the United States. 
That's fantastic to hear about. And I wonder, to me, and I think to some of the sort of sustainability-oriented folks out there, it seems obvious. All right, well, you know the risk is there. You know we need to make those investments different. So what's stopping cities and communities from reprioritizing their investments, from looking at their geo bonds, from incorporating these risks at the financial sector? Where's the barriers to mainstreaming their climate risk? That's a fantastic question. I think To be frank, because I think both you and I have been in the role of practitioner for cities, we know that the everyday trials and tribulations of running a city are priority. I sit here in the city of Chicago, and our priority is equity, it's jobs, it's racial issues, those and pension reform, for instance. All of those things, of course, have climate change risks embedded within them, but Climate change is going to be nowhere on the top 10 list of city leaders who haven't experienced an extreme event. So I think they're extreme um, climate-related event. So I think that we have to acknowledge that those of us who care deeply about climate change risk owe it to city practitioners to make connections between their top five or 10 priorities and climate change so that as we're building resilience, we are also addressing their issues that make that top five list. Affordable housing, better access to healthcare, safer communities, more just policing. How does that relate to climate change? And how can we ensure that any of the work that we're doing on climate change is in fact improving those everyday immediate concerns for cities? So that would be number one. And another is a little wonkier. So why isn't it obvious to cities that they would be spending their geo bond on climate resilience and trying to work towards addressing these future climate change scenarios? Well, the answer is, is that cities are extremely careful with their bond ratings. And in fact, city bond ratings are more stable than any other type of bond rating, by which I mean corporate bond rating or utility bond rating. And one of the reasons is for this incredible fiscal prudence. And so it's true that some resilience projects do have a delta. They cost more than, or they require an additional capital plan than a traditional means of, or the dinosaur dollar that I mentioned earlier. And when you have a green eye shade who's asking questions about how they can ensure that they maintain their credit rating that they currently have, and they don't go on watch, they're going to be very, very cautious about a resilience project that requires more dollars. Of course, we know that there are many climate change resilience projects that if they are done from the beginning in terms of, they're designed from the beginning with climate resilience in mind, not retroactively, number one, and where they use a cost-benefit analysis that actually accounts for the other benefits that are not necessarily directly related to, for instance, the infrastructure service delivery, Benefits including, for instance, decreased hospitalizations due to air quality when you bring in more green space to address stormwater. And when you equate that to a dollar value, it can begin to help a green eye shade see the value of these projects. But it's so much bigger than that, of course, because I know you've had several other experts on uh, your podcast discussing how hard it can be to actually equate dollar value to some of those collateral benefits that we have in mind for these resilience projects. 
Thank you for that clarification. I think it's a great example of unpacking some of those barriers in some really practical ways. I love the phrase green eye shade. I haven't heard that before. Maybe who's getting it right? Who have you seen who really is showing either leadership on this front or has started to deploy mechanisms to help mainstream their communities in ways that we should all be looking at? Yeah. Well, my answer is somewhat sobering to me. The communities I see getting it quote unquote right are those who have seen a huge influx of dollar resources based on catastrophic loss. In other words, those who have had natural disasters declared due to climate change-related events. So we know New York, New Jersey, Connecticut have taken a lot of leadership based upon the National Resilience Disaster Competition and other resources that they received following Hurricane Sandy. In fact, the bill that passed through Congress to help them to recover after Hurricane Sandy was probably the largest climate change bill ever passed in the Northern Hemisphere. And of course, climate change wasn't mentioned anywhere in the bill. So it's sobering because we shan't wait for these recovery dollars in order to mitigate our risk. We must move forward with the knowledge that we have already about what future risks look like. But it is extremely politically hard to do that because all of us who have worked for mayors or commissioners know that the term is limited and people need to see action today on those issues that are most favorable to the constituent. So from my perspective, who's doing it right? Who's doing it right are those communities that have embraced their current risk and used federal dollars, not just for recovery, but for future risk mitigation. And those communities who have worked carefully with networks like the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, 100 Resilient Cities, and other networks that are more um, geographically or risk-focused to try to figure out best practice, how to address questions like those I've already raised in our discussion of, for instance, accounting for the collateral benefits of resilience or convincing a financier in a city that they should be looking at resilience dollars over dinosaur dollars. All of that knowledge is brokered through city relationships in these networks and really helps us to move forward in the mainstreaming that I described. Thank you. I think that is a very sobering perspective. And we've talked in earlier episodes about the challenge of waiting until you have the disaster to start your recovery plan. And I appreciate the emphasis on not waiting um, and the challenge that we face there. So One of the things this makes me think of is all the surrounding context, the top 10 items that precede climate risk and and many other topics, and how do we connect those dots up? And I've heard you speak before, and and I think from what you've indicated before, there are other issues that might be better connected to adaptation and resilience to help move this forward. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about how we move the field as a whole, how we connect some of those topics, and maybe some of the different framings we need to be incorporating in our work to more effectively mobilize action. So that is a great question. I was fortunate to be part of a group of researchers that created a report last year called Rising to the Challenge Together, which was a critical assessment of the climate adaptation and resilience field in the U.S. and also offered a set of recommendations for different types of stakeholders. And this work was funded by the Kresge Foundation, 
Um, and part of what it created was a vision for the resilience field. And that vision is really crucial to my work. And I think to many who are in the practice of resilience, that is those who work beyond thought leadership and trying to, with grit and gumption, create resilience in their communities. And that vision is closing the gap that currently exists between climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation under with a bedrock of social equity. So the way I think about it for my practice is it's equity first resilience. How can we really escalate mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, which many more cities have embraced, at least formally, than they have climate adaptation? How can we acknowledge that there are risks that exist today and that are going to grow more extreme regardless of how close we get to our mitigation targets, the national, subnational, and international targets? And especially, how can we start this work by transforming our practice towards social equity as a real outcome of our resilience practice. And I use that word transformative with a real emphasis because to date in this conversation, I've talked about mainstreaming. And I think it's much more comfortable for us to think about essentially making resilience a part of our everyday work. And that needs to happen. Absolutely. But when we get to mainstream, we also are mainstreaming the systems that have been in place forever that have brought many communities to a place of inequity. And so transformative change asks us to look at both the quest for mitigating climate change risks and the quest for justice and social equity. And that is where we find, I think, incredible resonance for city leaders who want to address the issues that matter to their constituents at the same time that they are looking forward to really seizing the opportunity of resilience and therefore decreasing climate change risks. I'd love it if you could unpack that even a little more further, because I think that's going to be somewhat novel to folks who are just beginning to think about even resilience, much less mainstreaming resilience. What would be an example of transformative resilience, something that couples these things together, or maybe of mainstream resilience that has missed the mark because it did not consider these other factors, equity and social justice? Great. Well, I have a few examples for you. One, the LA SAFE project, that's the state of Louisiana's adaptation and resilience project that has worked with six parishes, those including and south of New Orleans, to create absolutely community-based plans for their transition to a climate-changed place. And there, the humbling and really tragic note that I mentioned earlier about, you know, who's doing it well, well, those it's those who've been driven by catastrophic loss. That loss is so visceral. 40% of some of those communities have left never to return, not just from the immediate after effects of uh, Hurricane Katrina, but from the knock-on economic disbenefits of the depopulating communities, where if you don't have a grocery store, if you don't have a place for your spouse to work, even if you have a good job, if your schools are depopulated, eventually you need to pick up and move. So I think that LA Safe is a great example of community-driven, equity-based resilience planning, taking into account and being very forthright about the risks that communities face, 
So that's a system or a process. But I also want to offer a tactic that I've used in the city of Chicago that maybe would break this down to be feel a lot less overwhelming. In the city of Chicago, for instance, if you took a map of the city and you took the census tract data about those living in poverty, and then you took a map of the city and you took a look at where the urban heat island effect was the most, and then you took a same a map of the city and you asked where have there been the most uh, 311 calls about water in basements because we have a combined sewer system, you would see that we have, in fact, complete tracking between those three maps. The poor are, in fact, more affected by urban heat island, and they are more affected by combined sewer overflows into their basements. And what those maps therefore say is when the city is continuing to modernize their stormwater system, uh, their combined sewer stormwater system, they need to start in lower income neighborhoods. When they are doing urban heat island mitigation, implementing cooling centers, educating uh, health officials about how to help knowledge broker with their patients, informing community policing about risks and um, how to mitigate them for extreme heat, they need to start in lower income communities. So those are very tactical ways to make equity first resilience a part of your process. And of course, I believe you've already um, heard about and thought about quite a bit with your audience, the um, Baltimore community resilience hubs, but those are another great example of equity first resilience where communities have their own agency and they've established with the help of the city, five hubs for resilience assets, everything from food and water to information, and things to do with helping communities to survive and perhaps even thrive in the midst of and following an extreme event, flooding-related or heat-related in their case. I love both of those examples, Joyce. Those were great, both the sort of comprehensive planning, responsive planning, and some very tactical data-driven analysis that can both empower people as well as uh, shine a light on where those risks are at. And you mentioned something in around that, particularly around Louisiana, which is my favorite unspeakable topic, which is retreat. And not just retreat, but displacement and the forces that are driving communities to change and the efforts we can take to hold together the fabric, not just the physical environmental fabric, but the social safety nets, the economic underpinnings, the infrastructure that are going to help us withstand events and hopefully thrive in the face of them. And I wonder if you have some thoughts on both the forces shaping displacement or how we respond to it. It is definitely an ugly topic that most people do not want to talk about. So I like to talk about it just because why not? Yeah, right. Why not? And of course, um, I sit here so pleasantly in the city of Chicago, which will not have retreat due to climate change risk. You know, we have adequate water supplies. We do not have coastal storms. Our extreme heat will be manageable. And we've already shown through our own tragedy of two decades ago that we can actually get better at saving lives in extreme heat events. So I just want to put that out there that I think those who are in fact coastal communities or in communities in the wildfire buffer or in communities that have inland flooding that are forcing them to consider a retreat are perhaps very worth listening to on this point. But we have to remind ourselves that we all have three choices. We have three choices as individuals. We have three choices as institutions, as elected officials, as civil servants, as corporate members. Those three choices are adapt or prepare or retreat. And the thing is, is that some of us would like to have 
the adaptation choice be the only choice that we make. But it turns out we actually are going to need to do all three. And those are communities that are, let's just take the inland and coastal flooding communities that are, you know, mapped out. Zwillo even talks about them. They talk about Zwillo being the real estate site that any of us use when we're renting or buying or selling property. They've talked about close to $800 billion in home assets that will be underwater by the end of the century due to, you know, in some places, uh, an up to six foot sea level rise. Well, those homes and that choice of retreat, I think, when we talk about it as being kind of ugly, we have to acknowledge that it's much easier to retreat in a planful way than it is to retreat due to a shock. So we have to put that on the table, that retreating can be a part of a community's evolution. And in fact, we've had communities move throughout our history after the Civil War or even before we had the diaspora of African-Americans moving north and arriving, for instance, in Chicago and creating Bronzeville, this incredibly vital place of African-American strength. So we know that it's possible to move communities and very hard. So I guess I would suggest that we want to be sure that we're in the process of thinking about adapt, prepare, retreat for any of the sectors that we work in, that when we get to that retreat question, we're asking questions about how to do it planfully and mindfully. And the first question, therefore, we need to ask is, how do we ensure that the retreat is not unequal? Because we wealthy people and those with more resources, like corporations that have lots of choices, will retreat planfully on their own devices, leaving communities that with much lower tax bases and less fees. And therefore, schools will bottom out and infrastructure will crumble and there won't be the means to repair them, not to mention the fact that jobs will go away. And this is not a, some Joyce notion. This has happened already in communities around the world. Given that, I mean, even the one I mentioned earlier about the six parishes south of New Orleans. So given that, the next thing we need to acknowledge is that the social safety net needs to get really clear quickly about applying resources to help those who have lower resources to retreat in places where it's not going to be tenable for them to live. And we don't want those resources to be after catastrophic loss, where this there's this incredible scramble to give them just the bare necessities. That's not a good use of dollars. So the first thing is to acknowledge where a managed retreat will be necessary and to see that, in fact, those with means will do so bottoming out revenue streams. And the second is to really apply our federal, state, and city social safety net funds to helping those with lower resources to move. And I, I think that that's just something that we need to do today. The problem is, of course, and not one I have a solution to, how do we prioritize? Because there's not enough money. In fact, when we have these recovery dollars, they come off budget, quote unquote, Essentially, we make money in order to pay for recovery. It's not part of the budget that's passed through Congress. And so there's not money like that to help with this retreat. So for instance, I was just speaking with someone from the GAO, the federal uh, agency, and they were saying that they're having to make hard choices when they think about adaptation overall between an Alaskan village where the permafrost is melting and the village is literally sinking into the earth and a Floridian community Who's, where the king's tides are making it almost untenable to live there today. Those seem like untenable choices to me. 
And um, I think to many who might be listening today, and I don't have a solution for how we manage that question, but I think that the fact that you're willing to state it here and get into the very tough discussion is a really important start. Thank you for putting your thoughts out there. I know we're just at the forefront of this conversation, and it's nice to be able to ask a question like that. I have the luxury as, as the interviewer of not having to answer it and putting you on the spot, but I really appreciate the sort of multidimensionality of thought that goes into it, because I think our, our communities do need to start thinking about this. And even if they're not maybe a direct frontline retreat community, Chicago is going to take in refugees, if you will, at some point in this process. And that needs to be part of the discussion as well. So it's, it's everybody's conversation to have. So as we think about wrapping up this, this interview, I would love to just leave our listeners with some ideas about first next steps organizations, resources, networks that they should be part of so that they can get informed, they can get engaged, and ideally they can start to get ready. Fantastic. I'm so glad you asked. So I can't speak highly enough of the Urban Sustainability Directors Network Equity Resources. They have a great set of videos for city practitioners to help all of us get smarter about how to build equity first into our climate change resilience work. So I really encourage everyone to check out that library. I also think that there are other network resources, including the 100 Resilient Cities City Resilience Framework and the strategies that are out there for the 33 cities within the United States that we all should be stealing from. That is part of the intention of 100 Resilient Cities, not just that those 100 cities around the world are resilient, but that we all can learn from the best practice and mistakes that are made by the cities that are really testing what resilience means for communities. So I encourage people to check out and cruise through the various resources there. But I think one of the most important things for transformative change is for all of us to really relentlessly communicate the scope and urgency of climate change as a problem, as well as the efficacy of solutions. And Kif, I think you all have been great at pointing out that there are solutions to these challenges. And some of them we talked about today, you know, mainstreaming resilience is an excellent solution. And it is possible to do today. Building in climate risk awareness to our planning processes for infrastructure funding and financing. That is possible to do today, especially if we continue to hold ourselves accountable and our colleagues in city government or those who advocate for or otherwise influence city practices and processes. I think there's also a really crucial possibility or opportunity here for engagement with academia and making sure that the academy is in fact helping with practical solutions. So for your particular community, wherever you sit, if there isn't an academic institution in your midst, then reaching out to an academic institution that's made climate change part of their beat, Arizona State University, Georgetown, George Washington, almost all of the California schools, California university schools, have some resilience program and putting a thesis on the table for them to chew on. Give them one of your biggest challenges. And of course, <laughs> the problem with that is that in the city, we work on weekly, daily, hourly deliverable timelines. We have to get things done quickly and the academy doesn't. But on the other hand, having an academy partner can really bring forth a lot of 
new and very empowering work for cities. And I think especially of, for instance, Phoenix and Tempe, who have in fact benefited from great urban heat island research from around the globe, because they've reached out to the university, Arizona State University, to get a better beat on what they should be doing. And probably we could actually count the number of lives that have been saved due to that academic and municipal partnership. So that would be another thing I would recommend that all of us consider. Those are some great suggestions. I appreciate the specificity and and kind of uh, vision behind them. Joyce, this has been wonderful. And I could talk to you, I think, all day long about the issues. I think we're just about out of time. I really appreciate your joining us, sharing your insights, your vision for a more resilient future, a transformative resilience, and some very practical steps for how we get there. Well, Kip, it's been my pleasure. And I sure hope that next time I get to interview you, because you would have some extraordinary answers that would, I think, really help our community. So here, here to your important work and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you so much. You too, Joyce. Stay cool up there in Chicago. And for all of you listening, we look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.